Hello, and welcome to Profiles, a program that introduces interesting people from Indiana, the United States, and the world to WFIU listeners. I'm Owen Johnson. Our guest on this occasion is Michael Shudson, the author of six books and editor of two others concerning the history and sociology of the news media. Now based at Columbia University, he is a former recipient of a MacArthur Foundation Genius Fellowship. Michael, welcome to Profiles. Thanks, Owen. You were born and grew up in Milwaukee. Um, how has your Midwest background affected your outlook on the media? <laughs> well, I, I grew up in a town with a quite famous and, and very uh, well-respected newspaper, uh, the Milwaukee Journal, now the Journal Sentinel. And uh, I didn't know that. <laughs> Milwaukee Sentinel came to the breakfast table every morning and the Milwaukee Journal every evening. My my father uh, judged himself a political independent, but in fact, he voted for Democrats almost all the time. But we got the Republican paper in the morning, the Democratic paper in, in the evening. The Republican paper was important uh, because my dad needed the sports in the morning and wasn't about to wait till later in the day. Uh, so we we learned to read um, both political brands. And I think how it really uh, affected me, apart from the fact that, yes, I had you know, acquaintance with good journalism that was part of the background of my experience and as was talking about politics at the dinner table. What I realize, having lived now most of my life on either the West Coast or the East Coast, is I think I felt just and feel grounded, uh, knowing something about what some of my acquaintances at both coasts think of as the flyover territory. And I don't. Uh, it's um, a part of the world I'm fond of, um, grew up with, and and it did feel to me, feels still to me like it's pragmatic, it's realistic. There's some sense of, of being in touch with um, the world beneath one's feet. How did you get interested in, in media? Were you a participant in some way? In a very limited way. I was co-editor of my high school newspaper. Even before that, in grade school, we invented, my friends and I, a, a, a newsletter. Uh, I I worked on the college newspaper as well later. And I guess I had it in the back of my mind that one day someone would ask me to be a syndicated columnist uh, starting at the New York Times. Sort of a Walter Lippmann thing. Yes. Walter Lippmann would have been very good. And, uh, of course, I did nothing to prepare myself for that. Uh, and and it, that was more of a pipe dream than anything else. But I, I liked the, the activity of the uh, high school and college uh, journalism. I did not go into it. I was, of, was, am of a more scholarly mind. And once I was in college, the idea of going on to be an academic seemed just right to me. Not only because one of my teachers said, oh, there are three great reasons to be an academic or teacher of any kind, June, July, and August. And uh, there's something to that, but that was not the the draw for me. It, w it was the the chance to be 
reading and writing and thinking and rethinking and trying it again and getting it right and raising another question. You did your graduate work at Harvard. That's not a place that has a journalism school. Um, so again, kind of the question is, what was it that kept you interested in the media? Well, in graduate school, which was in sociology for me, I had a variety of interests. I, I was very much interested in the history of ideas, actually. Uh, I had almost gone to a graduate school in the history of ideas at Brandeis. It was an appealing program to me. But I'd been an undergraduate sociology and anthropology major. Uh, I liked that. And I went to Harvard because at the time they had a social relations department which combined sociology, anthropology, and psychology. The interest in the media was somewhere in the back of my mind. But when it came to... Um, a time to be writing my dissertation, I had a lunch conversation with one of my mentors there, David Reisman, and he, I was, felt close enough to him and comfortable enough with him to try out that little query in the back of my mind that I hadn't been able to articulate before. And I said, you know, there's, there's a history of ideas that's a kind of known subfield in history, I think there should be a history of ideals. And he said, well, what do you mean by that? I said, well, you know, take American journalism. Journalists today are committed to an ethic of objectivity. They didn't used to be. How did that change come about? And he thought that was a very interesting question. I was studying sociology of work and occupations at the time. And I said, you know, in fact, there are several, there are quite a number of professions in which the same transformation happened from some uh, set of ideals or norms about uh, community or advocacy or one thing or another, but not objectivity. And later, uh, notions about objectivity or in medicine, detachment uh, or in in law, being willing to take on anyone as a client. Um, and I thought, there may be a dissertation here. So it was that backdoor approach. I came back to uh, journalism. My dissertation was actually about the notion of objectivity in law and in journalism. Now, that dissertation, which grew into the book Discovering the News, A Social History of American Newspapers, does deal with this issue of objectivity. Can you give us one single definition or does one have to define it differently at different times? I use a rough definition. Maybe it's time to revise that dissertation and talk about different versions of objectivity at different times. But, you know, the 19th century American press was thoroughly partisan. Newspapers were almost... Um, subdivisions or franchises of the Democrats and, and the Whigs or later the Democrats and the Republicans. And the, no one had any bones about saying so. Um, you know, even sainted presidents like Abraham Lincoln thought nothing of making appointments of, uh, to ambassadorships of editors who had supported them or helping their their 
sons to uh, good positions in the military and so forth. Uh, This was entirely standard practice. And what you didn't have there, although surely reporters, even in the time of the Civil War, tried to get the story right. They tried to get the story right from a given viewpoint. And what evolved somewhere between the 1880s and the 1950s was a notion that you should be trying to get the story right from no viewpoint, that uh, and in particular, not your own personal views. It's true the newspapers were becoming big businesses in the late 19th century, but but in fact, some of the most partisan newspapers uh, were gathering the most new readers, particularly those who were appealing on on the Democratic side to immigrant voters, new, new voters, that working class people were much more inclined toward the Democrats than to the Republicans. And they passed a lot of legislation that weakened the parties. It was designed to weaken the parties. For instance, voter registration was making it more difficult for parties to stuff the ballot box. And uh, a whole new form of balloting came in. We take it for granted now that the state prints the ballot and you mark on the ballot uh, whichever party it is or candidate it is that you want to vote for. That's not how people voted in the 19th century. They voted by... Uh, each voter receiving in person from a party worker a ticket that had only the names of the people on that party on that ticket. And you took the ticket and you put it in the ballot box without marking it. Uh, All the names from the Republicans, say, or the Democrats were there. You also notice you didn't have to be literate uh, to vote in those days. Um, So the, the switch to... The ballot we use today, uh, what is, uh, significantly increased the notion that you were supposed to be informed to be a voter. Um, at, at least you needed to be able to read and write, and that you had to make a choice. It wasn't just a matter of joining in with your tribe. By the 1920s, where you first widely get journalists talking about being objective was further advanced because there had been such a devastating and, for many people, traumatic experience with propaganda during World War I. Some of the journalists themselves, Walter Lippmann, uh, among those who worked in propaganda bureau, bureau for the U.S. government during World War I, people were more and more aware by that time that much of what got printed in the paper was what somebody else wanted to be printed in the paper, not what reporters themselves had gone out and come up with on their own. And by the 1920s, you got uh, more journalists and and sorts of uh, philosophers of journalism like Lippmann who said, we are surrounded by, bombarded by public relations and by people who want their views in our paper, we have to hold the fort. We have to say, we'll review that. We'll look at that. We will report what we think is appropriate to our audiences, not what Standard Oil or Ford Motor or the U.S. government thinks should be in the paper. And that sense that 
the journalist has to resist interested parties on behalf of some ideal of a public interest. That That's where you get the notion of objectivity kind of taking hold. It's partly the revolt against parties. It's partly the admiration for science. It's partly the revulsion against public relations. Many of the situations that you describe seem to be very similar today, and yet news media are going in different directions. One thinks about Fox News as clearly one side. What happened? What went wrong with objectivity? A couple of things happened. The first one really happened in the 60s where objectivity came increasingly under attack from critics of journalism and from some journalists. They said not that the objectivity as an ideal is a mistake, but that the routines into which journalism had settled as proxies for objectivity had led them astray. Uh, This began as early as the McCarthy era when journalists would write down and put in their news stories and lead the stories with Senator McCarthy's charges that so-and-so was a communist, that he was talking off the top of his head with zero evidence was not what you could do under the uh, most focused and uh, settled notions of of objectivity. The notion, the routine of objectivity was he's a U.S. senator. You, he, that's a, one of those inner circle people who whatever he says, you quote it. It's automatically news. Um, so he's a liar. You know, Someone's going to have of equal stature is going to have to say that uh, if we're going to run it. We're not going to investigate that on our own. So that routine and one might add lazy form of journalism had become conventional. And in the 60s, when there was such a major divide over the Vietnam War, some of this around civil rights, but particularly around the Vietnam War, where you got lower level officials, not the sort of people like the Secretary of State or the Secretary of Defense who had to be quoted, but lower level government officials telling the lower-level journalistic reporters, you can't believe what he says. Um, But eventually enough came out, Pentagon Papers and other things, that we could recognize, the journalists could recognize, that in fact, top government officials were simply lying to them. It was just a big PR show from President Johnson on down. And the notion of objectivity itself then came under attack. So objectivity became almost a dirty word in some circles at that point. But the institutions, broadcast and newspaper journalism, magazine journalism, hadn't fundamentally changed. And the the larger political economy of news had not changed until cable came in. And then suddenly there was this proliferation of possible news channels. The internet, you know, thousands of times more. And it became possible for there to be a Fox News, an MSNBC, for uh, an entire news division to 
take upon itself a, a complete flouting of objectivity. We're going to report from a conservative viewpoint. We're going to report from a liberal viewpoint. And I think Fox and MSNBC are something of a throwback to 19th century partisan journalism. It's different from the 19th century, however, I think, uh, because they're still the exception. They're not the rule. They have a kind of advantage uh, in the media marketplace because the the people who are drawn to those stations tend to be very interested in politics, tend to be very partisan themselves, uh, and tend to delight in having their partisanship reinforced. It would be interesting to know. This is a good research project for someone, but I would think that the people who watch CNN or the traditional networks are probably less interested in politics and probably know less about politics than the committed viewers at Fox or CNN. I could be wrong about that, but that would be interesting to test out. Why did this notion of objectivity take hold in the United States and not elsewhere? If you go to London, The Guardian you know, has one position, The Independent has one, The Telegraph has another. It's the same in France or, or in Poland. Why in the United States? I don't fully know the answer to that question, I, but I have asked that question more and more as I come to know about some other countries. I do think it goes back to this uh, progressive era revolt against party. That really didn't happen elsewhere. Uh, that sense of partisanship as itself corrupt. It it may and that may have had to do with the fact that American political parties were different from European political parties, uh, and that may have had something to do with the winner-take-all system of election we have. You know, in in many European countries. If you win 10% of the vote, you get 10% of the seats in the parliament. We don't have that here. You, you have to win 51% of the vote to get anybody um, into the Congress. So we don't have a proportional representation system as they do there. That means that we're confined for the most part with, with some notable exceptions, but for the most part to having two parties. They're both vying for the middle in in the general election, not necessarily in their primary elections, but in the general election, they're trying to get 51% of the vote. Uh, and that has tended to make them less ideological than European parties, where you have the Socialist Party and the Communist Party and the Christian Democrats and the and the monarchists, and you know, you, all over the spectrum, you have parties with clear ideological positions and American parties, in contrast, are a mush. I mean, when Europeans look at what the parties stand for, uh, they say it's impossible to get an answer about what they stand for because they don't know. And it changes from one election to the next. You know, the British Labour Party, until Tony Blair, didn't change for you know 100 years. It was the British Labour Party and they stood for the same things. The Democrats, um, they, they're changing all the time. There's a lot that the media was following the, in some ways the basic political structure here, which was really quite unusual, uh, quite different from the European. I think that 
the explanation lies in that mess of of details about the uh, political parties and the institutions of our electoral system. Let's take a break here for some music that you've selected. You indicated uh, that you'd like to hear the Sonata in C, Kirchhoff listing 545 by Mozart, uh, the first movement. Why that? Because the the more I hear it, uh, the better I'll play it. I, I played piano as a kid. Um, I once played it reasonably well. I have recently bought a keyboard, it's best I can fit in my small New York apartment, and uh, I'm taking great pleasure in trying the piano again. So I'm I'm trying to listen to this. I'm I have almost memorized the first part of that movement, but I'm finding um, memorizing a piece much more difficult than I think it was for me 55 years ago. Sonata in C by Mozart, the simple sonata, uh, the first movement. Music chosen by our guest on Profiles Today, media scholar Michael Shudson. You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Michael, your second book was something quite different, Advertising the Uneasy Persuasion. Um, What led you to that topic? At the point I turned to the topic of advertising, I was teaching at the University of Chicago and teaching a course called Mass Media and Society. And I didn't know very much at all about advertising. I wasn't particularly interested in advertising. But as I was teaching the social science literature about the impact of media on people, my students were arguing with me. The literature said, for the most part, the media have only weak impacts. Um, There are lots of other things that matter in the world, how how one is brought up and what class one is born into, one's religion, one's political background, and so on. And the the media are a, a small addition to that. And my students said, that's not true. I said, how do you know that's not true? The, the, the researchers say it's true. My students said, well, look, um, we wouldn't buy all this stuff that we buy if we weren't persuaded to buy it by somebody. Uh, we buy lots of junk. <laughs> and 
I, I agree with that. Uh, he said we were sort of tricked into it. Uh, at the time, this was some years ago, the, the hot new thing was designer jeans. Blue jeans were – Levi's were cheap. These Jordash and I, most of these don't exist anymore. But uh, there are various other jeans that were the same thing. Style was a little different. And the price was three times as high. And the students were all wearing them. We argued about that back and forth. And we came to this point uh, where my student said, look, you may think because you read some academics old study that advertising doesn't work, um, but businesses wouldn't spend money on advertising if they didn't know that it made a difference on the bottom line. And I heard that. I said, huh, that sounds like a good argument. I don't know the answer to that. And that's what led to the book on advertising because it turned out the students were wrong uh, about that. And the old literature was at least mostly right and businesses spent money on advertising all the time without knowing what kind of impact it had. Did you look at all into how consumers responded, how they reacted? Did, did you do sociological surveys? How do you f look at something like that? Well, I, no, I didn't, I didn't do surveys. I, I didn't study the consumers. I did a couple of things that uh, I thought brought me to uh, conclusions nonetheless. One thing I did was I sat in on courses at the business school next door to sociology. And, and my first discovery for me at the time as an outsider to this area is that they didn't have any courses on advertising. Well, if advertising was as important as my students thought it was and as I feared it might be, why wouldn't the business school teach any courses on it? Uh, well, the answer to that was they taught a marketing course. And marketing, according to business experts, is a combination of various things, promotion being one of them, advertising, but uh, the, there were three other P's. Uh, there was promotion, there was product, there was price, and there was place. So where do most people uh, bank? At whatever branch bank is closest to their place of residence or their place of work. Basically, nothing else matters in the consumer's choice on that. Uh, price matters enormously, and people worry a lot about the right price point for their product. And product, of all things, matters. Is your product good or isn't it? And does it really fit a need or not? My students were very interested, and critics of advertising are very interested in people buying things that they don't need. But need is a sort of relative term. And uh, in fact, people have used, say, uh, cosmetics long before there was any, any advertising. And when I was doing this research, people spent tons of money on a product that was never advertised. I hate to mention this on radio, but it was called marijuana. Um, it was very big. It was a billion-dollar industry, and it had never been advertised. So all of this began to make me think that though we all suspected that 
other people were being influenced by advertising, we also tended to think, well, we were immune to it our, ourselves. If everyone thinks that, then everyone is immune and they may be just wrong about other people. Uh, so the business school had an impact on me. Um, so did talking to people who do advertising because part of the fear people had about advertising is that they know how to manipulate us. Uh, they have all these studies and this scientific data that means that they know just how to reach us. That's not what I heard from people in advertising. Uh, I, I remember in particular, I don't think I put this in the book, but in particular one interview with a, a researcher in advertising that is a, who worked for an advertising agency and did research for it. Um, the, the research they did when it came to actually making the ad was to test the ad out on people and see if they responded. But they never knew in advance what people would respond to in an ad. You know, they didn't have a science that told them, oh, it, it needs to be in um, emphasize the color red. The things they knew about, they, they also didn't always use. And the, what she told me was that we know how to get people to respond to an ad. Do you know the answer to that? You put a baby in the ad. You put a baby in the ad and people will pay attention doesn't matter what you could be selling cars you don't have to have a beautiful blonde draped over the 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 front of the uh, of of the car just put a baby in the car and everyone is going to be paying attention i i actually thought this was rather hopeful about the the, the human psyche uh, but the result was that they would not in sample ads shown to their clients the businesses they would not do a sample with a baby in an ad because otherwise the ad agency would be doing nothing but making ads with babies in them. They they wanted more fun in their lives. So I learned a lot from talking to people in advertising about what they knew and mostly what they didn't know. And it seemed to me that what they didn't know was far larger than what they did. In 1990, you received a Guggenheim Fellowship and you also were awarded um, – one of these MacArthur Foundation um, genius grants. What was your reaction to receiving a genius grant? Well, my immediate reaction when I got this phone call uh, from a guy who said his name was Ken Hope from the MacArthur Foundation, after the call was over, I, I put down the uh, receiver and after a few minutes, I got back on the phone and uh, got information for Chicago, got the number of the MacArthur Foundation, and called them and said, do, do you have an employee there named Ken Hope? <laughs> uh, I didn't believe it. Uh, apparently, this is a very common reaction for people because this is a, 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 there's a lot of money connected to this fellowship. Uh, it's a great honor, and you can't apply for it. So you just get this phone call out of the blue. And I I thought, which of my evil friends could have dreamt up this practical joke? Uh, fortunately for me, it turns out there was a Ken Hope, and he did run the fellows program at MacArthur. 
at that time, I think it was five years of salary. Now I think it's five years and $500,000. The book that I find most interesting um, that, you've, that you've written is Watergate in American Memory. Not in American history, but in memory. Whatever happened to that, that idea that we could know our history as a set of facts? In a way, this brings us back to the earlier discussion about, about objectivity. Why is memory so important in this? That book was, in a way, it was a, uh, w- one of my most self-centered um, inquiries. For me, the question, one of the questions uh, of great interest about um, Watergate and, and where I think my, my book made something of a contribution is to say that the custodians of our memory are multiple. Um, the historians are, are one of them. Uh, the journalists are another. But there are many besides that. Uh, I was quite taken with legislators, with politicians as custodians of memory. And I, I was very struck in doing the research for the book that in some of the post-Watergate legislation, people on the floor of the House and Senate talked about themselves as custodians of memory. In those words, they said that we don't need new legislation if it's just up to us. We lived through the trauma of Watergate. We lived to see a president removed or essentially removed from office because he violated his constitutional oath. We know how much of a constitutional crisis one can get into if we're not monitoring power. But we're not going to be here forever. People are going to replace us and they're not going to have the memories we do. So they were very interested in making sure that the power of their their memory of having been seared by Watergate, they knew it would disappear. It would become part of the past. And they wanted the protections against the kind of abuses of Watergate not to fade with them. How do you do that? You pass a law that sets the, the protections in not quite stone, but in strong substance. And the Ethics in Government Act, the special prosecutor, which has now expired, the provision for a special prosecutor, but many other post-Watergate laws um, were their effort to create a different form of memory. That, and I I talk about others in the book, but that that really made me see, and there is some, one can even call it memory studies in the academy, tends to focus on history books, monuments, film sometimes, uh, uh, tends to focus on works of art that talk about the past. And I think you have to look well beyond that to see how things pass into a con- continuation of memory. What difference does it make when those people who were directly involved with an event or lived through that event are no longer around. I'm thinking, for instance, in World War II, uh, people who had adult experience of the war are rapidly passing from from the scene. Watergate is still nearer to us, but those people who were actively involved in the Watergate events are now beginning to pass from the scene. Will that change our understanding as well when we no longer have the actual participants? 
Yes, it will. There's nothing we can do about that. Is that negative? I guess maybe I should... should... Is that negative? It's just, it's part of life. And uh, so I sympathize with and appreciate what the members of Congress were doing in the late 70s, trying to think about how they could um, institutionalize memories of this traumatic moment in American history. You can't fully do it. You can't capture for your grandchildren or your great-grandchildren what it felt like. You know, we have more tools for doing that than we used to. We have film and film archives. We we have the voice of Edward R. Murrow talking about the Blitz from London. Uh, we don't have that for the Civil War. Um, we don't have that for the American Revolution. So we have some words from those periods, and the, and the words matter. And you can do reenactments of Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, and you can get kids to memorize Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. Uh, it still takes work beyond that to get them to understand it, uh, to to know what that meant at the time. Um, so it takes imagination, too. But when the firsthand experience goes, something something is irretrievably lost. In late 1990s, you engaged in uh, an interesting discussion uh, that went on. Sociologist Theta Scotchpole, Bob Putnam, who by then was at, at Harvard University, on the changing nature of citizenship. I think Putnam's phrase, bowling alone, got the biggest public attention because it first appeared in an article, later expanded into a book. Um, you make in, in your book, The Good Citizen, uh, a distinction between uh, forms of civic participation and ideals of civic participation. Can you elaborate on that? Sure. Putnam's work had been very important broadly in uh, one of those pieces of academic research that escaped academia and and was widely read in church groups and all over the country. Uh, and just to recapture for people who may not remember this uh, wonderful book, Bowling Alone, what the title came from a fascinating finding he had, which is that in the 1990s, just as many people were going bowling as in the 1960s. But there were very many fewer organized bowling leagues than there had been a generation earlier. So he said people must have been bowling alone. Uh, and that represented, encapsulated a much larger argument about the decline of civic organizations. And his argument was people learn about democracy by doing it, not not by reading the, the civics book uh, or taking the civics class, but by doing it. And they did it in the PTA meetings and in bowling leagues. You have to elect a team captain. The team captains have to get together and decide on the rules for handicapping the, the league and so on. Um, that's democracy at work. And people extrapolate from that to understanding the electoral system and so on. So he was quite pessimistic. Uh, I mean, he was he was hoping his book and other work might, might revive, uh, help revive American citizenship. But he was, he, he saw a decline in citizenship. And I was not so sure. 
that that was happening. I was uh, thinking that that what citizenship is is a, is a kind of mix of ideals and of concrete practices, and that to be as down as he was about contemporary America was maybe a misreading of our past. And so I, I was interested to look really over 200 years of of American history and say, well, how good was our citizenship in the past? Um, it, it's one thing to know what the ideals were. You know, uh, we know what Thomas Jefferson said about the importance of newspapers. We know what he tried to pass in Virginia uh, about a free public education. That's the ideal. The practice, his bill for free public education didn't succeed, never became law uh, in, in his lifetime. And free public education is a mid to late 19th century development in, in American history. Thomas Jefferson and the newspapers, well, he did believe in a free press. Um, but that was his ideal. In practice, he was especially interested in in making sure that the federal government did not interfere with the free press. But if the state governments wanted to, that was okay with him. Um, he, in fact, supported libel prosecutions uh, at the state level, once briefly at the federal level. So practice and ideals are sometimes quite different things. And it seemed to me important to recognize, not that there was anything wrong with Robert Putnam's data. Uh, it was impressive data and and well put together. Um, and there was a decline in traditional civic organizations. At the same time, uh, you know, it, in the period he was concerned about, 1960s and after, at the same time, it's hard to see any moment uh, before 1965 when American political life was as democratic and inclusive as it became after the uh, Voting Rights Act of 1965. Um, until then, it was all but impossible for African Americans to vote in many states in the Union. Uh, there was an increasing emphasis in American life from the 1960s on, and not so much before, in inclusiveness, in participation of minorities, in protection of individual rights, in uh, economic support, particularly for the elderly. I mean, the, the, the levels of poverty among those 65 and over uh, dropped by about half between 1960 and 1980, thanks to Medicare. Um, there were huge, huge changes in American life that by anyone's measure have to be judged improvements. I, I thought that once you compare practice to practice and ideal to ideal, although today is anything but perfect, the measures of improvement over time have to be factored into any assessment of, of where we stand and how well we're doing. I'd like to spend more time on this subject, but we're beginning to run out of time. And there's one one subject I still would like to raise, and that's uh, connection with the study that you did in 2009, I think it was, with Len Downey, um, former editor of the Washington Post, about the crisis facing the American news media. Uh, can newspapers survive? That sort of thing. 
some time has passed since then. What's your attitude or position now toward um, the fate of the news media in the U.S.? It's not very different from what Len and I wrote a, a year ago. I, I'd say I'm a little less apocalyptic. <laughs> than, I mean, even then, even a year ago, I, I think Len and I were more optimistic um, than many people were at the time. People were at that point waiting almost with bated breath until the first major American city would not have a daily newspaper. A year later, we still have about 1,400 newspaper, daily newspapers in the country. The decline in the number of daily newspapers is no more rapid than it was in the early 1990s, in fact, before the Internet was a factor, before Craigslist was a factor. Um, the newspapers are thinner. They have... Uh, let go thousands of reporters. It's not like there isn't anything to worry about. I do worry about it. I'm particularly concerned, as we were in the report a year ago, that um, local public affairs reporting, the, the watchdog on the local government is um, in more difficulty than it was uh, before the economic crisis and, and the competition from the Internet. At the same time, I'm even more impressed than I was a year ago with what some of the new online operations are doing, the online-only nonprofits. I'm impressed by what universities do uh, increasingly in journalism schools and sometimes outside of journalism schools and having students producing work directly for the general media, putting it up on a website, making it available to uh, small newspapers and big newspapers. I mean, the... Uh, the New York Times uh, works with um, CUNY uh, Graduate School of Journalism, NYU School of Journalism. They and other major newspapers are also cooperating with nonprofits. And th there's a whole ethic of collaboration in conventional newspaper newsrooms that I think people would have thought this was crazy, even as recently as a decade ago, or just anathema, don't, not my newspaper, not me, who are now collaborating. They have to. Um, it's not like they, uh, out of the goodness of their heart, wanted to, but the economic crisis has forced them to, uh, to find whatever ways they can to, uh, to make ends meet, collaboration being one of them, and it works, and they learn things. The um, opportunities for new forms of journalism for you know an aspiring journalist can hope not to wait for twenty five years until they have a voice in in the news organization. They can start their blog tomorrow i mean th this is a great boon for journalism your Your final piece of music, which we'll hear at the end of this program um, moments in the woods. can you tell us about that? Uh, yeah, I'm a big Stephen Sondheim fan, and uh, and par particularly Into the Woods, and th this this song has a, a wonderful piece of philosophy embedded in it. it. It's a it's a funny moment in in the plot. It's the the baker's wife has met uh, the prince uh, far above her station in life in, in the forest in the woods. And he seduces her. Um, 
she's fairly willing to be seduced. And after the encounter, um, she wonders, what, did this happen? Was that a prince? And did a pr- prince really kiss me? And and then he says, oh, by the way, I'm I'm leaving. That was just a moment. And she, what, what? You know, love him and leave him is clearly the, 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 the prince's viewpoint. Uh, and she's disappointed and she he says it was just a moment in the woods and and the woods stands for various things but it's it's fantasy it's it's not real and she says in song oh if life were only moments even now and then a bad one then she has a second thought if life were only moments then you'd never know you had one and to me, that was a, a return to the, the notion of collective memory or memory, um, what a life is, what a biography is, and a sense of the importance of history. That brings us to the conclusion of this moment of conversation. Our guest today has been Michael Shudson, historian and sociologist of the media. Michael, thanks for being here. A pleasure. We close now with that additional music, Moments in the Woods. For WFIU, I'm Owen Johnson. Anything can happen in the woods. May I kiss you? Any moment we could be crushed. Don't feel rushed. This is ridiculous. What am I doing here? I'm in the wrong story. Wait one moment, please. We can't do this. Of course, you're right. How foolish. Foolishness can happen in the woods. Once again, please, let your hesitations be hushed. Any moment, big or small, is a moment. After all, seize the moment. Skies may fall any moment. Days are made of moments, all are worth exploring, many kinds of moments. The program you just heard was recorded in October of 2010. The studio engineer and technical producer was Michael Pascash. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Christina Kuzmich, executive producer. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.